From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Wednesday, July 11th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Coming up, talking to the Taliban in Afghanistan. One former diplomat did it and got a surprising insight. Thinking Taliban blame many of their current woes on al-Qaeda. We'll hear what that could mean for Afghan peace talks. Also, the problem with similar-sounding words in Chinese. Because there are so many homophones in Chinese, there's a sort of a fetish about them. A lot of times, forbidden words would be taboo precisely because they sounded like another word. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. And by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors. Don't miss the series premiere of Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Today, dozens of people took part in a protest rally in Kabul, Afghanistan. They demanded justice for the victim of recent public execution in a province north of the Afghan capital. That execution was caught on video. It's been seen online by people all over the globe. It shows a woman reportedly accused of adultery. She's sitting on the ground with her head covered. A man opens fire, and then witnesses are heard cheering. Local officials blame Taliban militants for the execution, but the militants deny they were involved. Michael Semple is a former diplomat who served in Afghanistan. He says it's hard to know which side to believe because in the past, this sort of incident has been manipulated by both sides in Afghanistan. Sometimes those on the government side who want to paint the other side as being completely beyond the pale, even when the Taliban haven't done this, they pin it on the Taliban. On the other hand... Some of the hardliners in the insurgency, they deliberately engage in this kind of extreme violence so as to make it impossible for anybody else to sit down with the Taliban and cut the kind of deal that the person I talked to would be in favor of. Semple is now a fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights at Harvard's Kennedy School. He himself recently sat down for a discussion with a senior Taliban commander. He's a veteran of the Taliban movement, has been with them since the the early days. He's held a senior post in their administration when they were uh, running the, the country. He's remained loyal to the movement and he's done a stint in Guantanamo. I understand you can't say too much more about him, but can you tell us uh, how you were able to speak with him and uh, under what circumstances? Well, look, I knew a lot of people uh, while they were in power. I was working for the United Nations in, in those days, uh, and I deliberately have uh, maintained contact with um, some of these gentlemen uh, since they were uh, were pushed out. Uh, we should say that you were pushed out uh, or left Afghanistan in 2007 when you were a diplomat uh, for the European Union because you had met with some Taliban leaders to explore peace talks at the time. So the the bottom line message that you got from this Taliban commander who you're calling Mulvey is what? Is that there is a very interesting 
political discussion going on inside the Taliban movement. And one part of that discussion, which is represented by uh, Mulvey, uh, and I know quite a few other people who articulate fairly similar views, uh, is inherently pragmatic. Starts with the idea that they also know that although they're not defeated, they can't achieve a military victory. They're not going to sweep to power in Kabul or take over the, the country that they are obliged to come up with some kind of accommodation with their fellow Afghans, get it absorbed into uh, some system that they can all live with, and that ultimately they will require some kind of equitable relations with the international community, including the United States. They're also saying, he's also saying, that the Taliban has no interest in negotiating with the government of President Hamid Karzai. They believe that that government is a tool of the Americans, and basically it's Americans who pick the president. It doesn't sound like a good starting point for any kind of a, a lasting peace. The viewpoint that uh, Mulvey has put across, it is inherently uh, pragmatic. It does indeed have a, a vision of uh, reaching some kind of settlement amongst Afghans, uh, but they don't expect to be doing it on the kind of terms that uh, either the government in Kabul or the United States you know, have been most obviously pushing, expecting that somehow they would you know, accept the offers which have been uh, put from the uh, from the Kabul government and sort of sit down and say sorry. They expect some kind of uh, accommodation amongst Afghans, which they hope that the international community might buy into. Under that scenario that, that Malvi, this Taliban commander, presented to you, can you describe more of what Afghanistan would look like? There's a key point that the Taliban are going to have to confront. The hardliners in the movement are uh, ostensibly fighting to restore the Islamic Emirate, which one way or another would indeed look like Afghanistan was in the 90s. I think that a major chunk of the movement has realized it's simply not going to happen because they cannot get the uh, the support of the population for the restoration of Islamic Emirate. It will not be tolerated by the international community. Uh, and the Afghan people as a people have themselves moved on, that they, you know, the population is not the same population that it was 10 or 15 years ago. They wouldn't stand uh, so, for Sharia law? Is that what you're saying? The issue is not even Sharia law. The issue is about the monopoly of power by a small clique that seeks to you know, appoint itself and try to dominate society. Afghan, Afghans have got used to... you know, different kinds of freedoms. They're simply not going to accept that kind of domination of, uh, of power in the country by a small clique. Pragmatists in the movement realize that. Hardliners try to uh, you know, pretend that they only have a problem with the Americans and that once the Americans are gone, that the, uh, the Afghan population will accept them. How that debate plays out inside the Taliban movement is going to determine in part whether you know, Afghanistan moves towards a civil war after the uh, the US and NATO draw down. And Michael, you're using quite a bit the term pragmatists. Is, is the majority yes. of the Taliban made up of pragmatists? The pragmatists clearly are an important faction inside the Taliban. Currently, the, the movement does not have democratic practice. It's working in a very a highly undemocratic way at the moment. They've never uh, had a chance to, uh, to test their numbers to show whether they really can determine the direction of the movement. Michael, where do you think this is all leading, if anywhere? There is a very serious possibility that as the U.S. winds down its presence in Afghanistan, but does try to obviously to maintain some kind of engagement, that Afghanistan moves on towards civil war. Uh, however, the existence of pragmatists inside the, the Taliban who have uh, worked out that you know, civil war 
does not mean victory for them. The the fact that many other uh, people in the other parts of the political spectrum in Afghanistan have worked out the, 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 they reach the same conclusion that they really must try and avoid civil war means that there's a lot to play for. Michael Semple is a fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights at the Kennedy School at Harvard. A transcript of his full interview with a senior Taliban commander is going to appear in the upcoming edition of the British political magazine New Statesman. Michael, thanks a lot. Thank you. There's an al-Qaeda-linked group in Africa that's been raising its profile. The group is called Ansar Dean, and it is an Islamist militant group in Mali. It's launched a campaign to destroy several historic tombs in the ancient city of Timbuktu. The militants claim that the tombs violate Islamic law. Last week, they attacked and damaged several sites in Timbuktu, and now it's being reported that the group completely destroyed two ancient tombs. Alida Boya was a former coordinator of the Timbuktu Manuscripts Project, which is at the University of Oslo in Norway. Could you describe for us these tombs that have been destroyed? The tombs are, as you say, they're ancient tombs, most of them from the, many from the Middle Ages. As most buildings in Timbuktu, they're made of mud, adobe, like you have in Santa Fe in the United States. These tombs are also made of of mud. Who is in the tombs? You've probably heard about Timbuktu and the 333 saints. These saints, they were real people. They were great scholars of the time. And the scholars of today can trace back the teachings of Islam in Timbuktu back to these scholars that are, uh, or saints as one calls them. So this veneration is really has to do with teaching and with scholarship and teaching not only a legal tradition within Islam, but also astronomy, medicine, all the great scholarship of Timbuktu. When you learn of events like this and perhaps fear more coming, I just wonder what your reaction is. I'm very sad, of course. I'm shocked with the hopeless situation, and there's so little we can do because if if anyone came in with any kind of a military intervention, the first thing they would use is these monuments. So this is the people of Timbuktu have done what they can, and the children, the youth, were ready to to mobilize and go out. And, but they were so afraid that there would be a, a bloodbath. So there's a sense of hopelessness, which I think almost every Malian and, and many people who have who know this area are going through. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Ali Daboya was coordinator of the Timbuktu Manuscripts Project at the University of Oslo. She spoke to us from Bamako, Mali, which is where she now lives. Last week, researchers at CERN, the nuclear research facility in Switzerland, unveiled Higgs boson, the subatomic particle. Well, this week, researchers in Cambridge, England, unveiled Higgs boson, the musical, sort of. Higgs boson is the particle that supposedly gives everything in the universe its mass. Since the announcement last week, a researcher named Domenico Vicinanza and his team in Cambridge, England, have sonified it. Vicinanza works with DANTE, or Delivery of Advanced Network Technology, to Europe. He's a particle physicist and a professional composer, so who better to convert Higgs boson to a melody? Here's how he says he did it. In order to take a subatomic particle like the Higgs boson and convert it into 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 a into a melody into a note, what we do was basically taking the, the data 
and associate to each one of the numeric values a single note on the on a, on a score. The melody is following basically exactly the same behavior the scientific data is showing. So when the when the piano starts playing, you can hear some really really high pitch notes. Uh, those high pitch notes, there are three of them in particular. If you can listen carefully, they are the signature of the Higgs boson melody, and they are corresponding to a peak in the scientific graph the researchers shown uh, at CERN. Actual data points are only the one played by the piano at the beginning and then uh, played by piano in marimba in the second repetition so that marimba was playing the lower notes and piano was pay playing the higher notes. So it sounds like um, a Cuban habanera, but this is just a coincidence. Most of the, uh, of the analysis techniques that we have today are mostly visual. And this is actually preventing all the uh, visually impaired people and blind people to work on data analysis. I believe that uh, music and science, they share the same quest for, for harmony, for symmetry, for regularity, if you like. Um, I, I firmly believe that science can offer musicians a wonderful way to look for interesting melodies, interesting harmonies, uh, interesting sonic phenomenon that can be um, taken and used for uh, used by a composer to create some real entertainment. Boson, the musical physicist and composer Domenico Vicinanza, sonified the Higgs boson particle. Our global hit and geoquiz and a lot more still to come. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. In China, Internet use is growing rapidly every year. And as millions more people access the web through their phones and computers, there have been some unexpected effects on the Chinese language. Reporter Nina Porzuki takes a look at how technology is changing Chinese. When Sabrina Zhang and Jack Wong took their high school writing exam in their native China, they remember a funny new rule written at the bottom of the test about certain words they couldn't use. You can't use the internet words in the writing. Some young people, young students, they always use the internet words. That makes the teacher very angry. It's just natural, right? Uh, when, when we use it, it's a youth way of expressing ourselves. A ban on internet slang? Was this just the petty irritation of an old-fashioned professor or something bigger? 
More than 500 million people are now online in China. They're microblogging, instant messaging, texting, and the results? It's changing Chinese, it's changing the characters, it's changing the way they write in so many ways. David Moser is an American linguist who lives in Beijing. According to Moser, the internet has become a place for people to play with the Chinese language. Now, puns and wordplay have a long history in Chinese culture. Moser says Chinese is the perfect language for punning. Nearly every Chinese word has multiple homophones. Remember that word from elementary school? Homophones are two words that sound similar but have different meanings, like hair, that rabbit-like creature, and the hair on your head. Well, in Chinese, there are endless combinations. Because there are so many homophones in Chinese, there's a sort of a fetish about them. As far as the culture goes back, you have cases of homophone usage, homophone humor, and a lot of times uh, forbidden words or taboo words would be taboo precisely because they sounded like another word of some kind. A good example is the number four, which sounds like the word for death, and the number eight, which sounds like the word for prosperity. I have an aunt, a Chinese aunt, who used to work for a phone company, and she could make money by selling telephone numbers. People would bribe her. They would say, you know, give me, come on, give me a number with a lot of eights. And she had control over allocation of the numbers. So, you know, people would give her uh, gifts or bribes to give a good, an auspicious cell phone number. Today, Wordplay Online has less to do with getting auspicious numbers and more to do with getting around censorship. I saw a real clever one the other day, the reference to the Tiananmen Square massacre, which in China they refer to as 6-4 because it was June 4th. So I saw this thing, the, the Ba Cheng Ba incident, which I said, the what incident? Ba Cheng Ba is an 8 times 8 incident. And then I, then I forgot, it, oh, the 8 times 8 is 64. But censorship is just one reason netizens play with words online. Another is the very technology that enables people today to type Chinese characters onto their cell phones and computers. Jack Wong whips out his phone to show me how. It's the same as the, the English keypad, right? So it has all the English letters, Q, W, E, R, it's the QWERTY, the yeah. regular keyboard. Yes, and we use it in pinyin. That's how we type Chinese. Pinyin is the method for converting Chinese characters into our alphabet. Like the Chinese word for today, Jintian is written J-I-N-T-I-A-N. Wang types the English letters onto his phone, and as he types, a list of characters pops up on the screen. So what are all the different options that you have right now? This is a similar pronounce, like this is a Jing, and this is a Jing, 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 Jing. <laughs> it's all, all the... S- they're all the- Jing, but they sound like the same to me. So what, what yeah. they're all different. Yeah, they, they're, they're all different. All those jins are represented by totally different Chinese characters, which mean totally different things. Like this jin means to enter to some place, and this jin is gold, and this means close, this means only, and this means today. So every day, people are typing in words like today and seeing all of the potential homophones for that word. This, says David Moser, has fueled wordplay like never before. And I think that's given rise to a lot more puns than would, would normally have been uttered in, you know, in the earlier days when you had to just pull everything out of your head. And people have gotten even more creative, playing with this input system to intentionally create new Chinese slang. 
They translate English phrases into pinyin and then into Chinese characters. The meaning of these new words can seem random, but they're not. Here's an example of a really weird one. I mean, this term boli, which means glass, what it meant was a, a male homosexual. How did a Chinese word for glass come to mean gay man? Turns out the slang term actually comes from an English phrase, boy love. So netizens go from boy love, which they then abbreviate into the English letters BL, and then they look for a similar abbreviation in Chinese. They would find a Chinese word that has BL in the pinyin, boli, which is glass, and so then suddenly the word glass was being used for male homosexuals. The internet has even given out-of-date Chinese characters new life. One of the most popular of those new old characters is Zhong. The character looks like an unhappy face with drooping eyes and a frown. People started using it like an emoticon, representing embarrassment or frustration. But virtually nobody knows what the character originally meant. Can you see, see the sad face means something very uh, embarrassing. This words we won't find it on the Chinese dictionary. This character, you'll never find it on the Chinese dictionary? Not, no, not, in the, not in the modern Chinese dictionary. It means window, right? Really? <laughs> I even don't know that. There are thousands of obsolete characters like Zhong. And part of the fun is mining these forgotten characters to create new meanings. But this casual inattention to the meanings of these characters online concerns some linguists like John Pasden. We're getting some really weird, like, mutations of the language, you know, mixing with English and phasing in and out of Chinese and non-Chinese. And um, just this complete disregard for the meaning of the characters, I think, has some serious long-term implications if it keeps going on. Pretty soon, says Pasden, people will start wondering, Why am I even writing all these strokes if I don't even care about the meaning of this character? I'm just using it as a sound. And when you start doing that, then you're on the slippery slope towards simplifying to a phonetic writing system. But for 19-year-old Jack Wong, this isn't a problem. This new wordplay is the future. I think we should catch up with, with the time. <laughs> if people use it, we, we should use it. And right on cue, Wong gets a text. For The World, I'm Nina Porzuki. There's more about the inventiveness of the Chinese language in our weekly podcast, The World in Words. This week, you can also learn about a North Korean song with a catchy title, Excellent Horse-Like Lady. Sing along at theworld.org. Before we take a break now, we've got just enough time for our geo-quiz, which is a vast desert that's just been designated Australia's largest indigenous protected site. It covers 25 million acres, an area just about the size of Kentucky. This desert was, until recently, largely unexplored. Some still call it the final frontier in Australia's northern territory. We'll tell you more about life in this desert in the second half of the program. PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, two siblings on a mission to help their autistic brother meet his music hero. 
We thought we were going on the kind of fantastic American rock and roll road trip, but what we discover is we're inside this van having to learn about our brother because to get Tom to find his dream, we're going to have to learn how to handle him. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. It's not every day that you see hundreds of scientists in white lab coats taking to the streets, but that's what happened yesterday in the Canadian capital of Ottawa. The scientists and their supporters marched outside Parliament. No science, no evidence, no truth, no Protesters charge Canada's Prime Minister Stephen Harper with muzzling government scientists and slashing environmental research. In a few minutes, we'll talk to a journalist who's written about the shifting politics of science and environmental protection in Canada. But first, one of the triggers of this protest, it was a high-profile fight over an unlikely place, a little-known research facility deep in the Canadian forest. Reporter Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program NOVA went there. I'm riding along a twisting gravel road in western Ontario, just north of Minnesota. Black spruce trees and scraggly jack pines hug the road. Every couple minutes, I spot another lake peeking through the trees. So just up around the corner here is where the restricted area begins. This restricted area is basically an outdoor laboratory, and John Shearer worked here for almost 40 years. He retired recently as the senior biologist and operations manager at this government facility known as the Experimental Lakes Area. There are probably close to a 1,000 lakes within a a 20-mile radius of where we're standing now. Scientists know these lakes incredibly well. The lake beyond the culvert is Lake 626, They've all been numbered. This uh, little lake through the trees here is Lake 442. And they've been the sites of numerous experiments. In fact, some of the most influential environmental research in recent decades has been done here. For instance, much of what we know about the effects of acid rain. Scientists slowly poured acid into one of the lakes and watched what happened. Another study showed that adding phosphorus to lakes triggers massive blooms of algae. That led to a ban on phosphates and detergents in the U.S. and Canada. Shearer is quick to add that researchers always clean up the lakes once they've finished an experiment. The experimental lakes area, he says, offers a rare opportunity to do large-scale experiments in nature. Scientists can change conditions in a whole lake system as opposed to a test tube or a flask. But after more than four decades of research, this unique outdoor laboratory may soon shut down. The Canadian government announced recently that it would cease operating the facility as of next spring. John Shearer says when he heard the news, he was astonished. It's hard to believe that any facility that has led the world in freshwater research could not be important to the federal government of Canada that has so much fresh water within its boundaries. Many scientists are angry about the impending closure, but those most directly involved can't talk about it publicly. 
That's because government scientists have been instructed not to speak with the media, and non-government scientists have been threatened with the loss of their research permits if they escort a journalist here. Shearer agreed to take me to the facility because he's retired. He's got nothing to lose. But others say they have a lot to lose if the experimental lakes area shuts down. There will be no jobs for me as a scientist. I'm going to leave the country. Diane Orihel is a University of Alberta graduate student who studies water pollution. She's founded a coalition of scientists and citizens who are lobbying to save the experimental lakes area. She says her team's gathered 17,000 Canadian signatures. Orihel believes the planned closing of the ELA is part of a larger shift in her government's attitude towards science. I think that the government is shutting down ELA because it does not want the information that ELA generates. It gets in the way of economic development. As she sees it, the conservative government of Prime Minister Stephen Harper is intent on rolling back environmental protection and research while it pushes the extraction of natural resources, particularly Canada's oil sands. Now, the government says its decision to close the ELA was simply a matter of finances. Canada is hundreds of billions of dollars in debt, and the facility was one of a number of programs sacrificed as a deficit-reducing measure. Operating the ELA costs about $2 million a year. This is not a decision that reflects on the quality of the science that has been done. In fact, says Dave Gillis of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, the ELA may yet remain open. He says the government is hoping another institution, a university, say, will take over operations. Our energies right now are focused on identifying an alternate operator for the ELA site uh, so that that type of research can be conducted on into the future under new management. But critics find this plan vague and unrealistic. No institution has stepped forward, and the expected closure is now less than nine months away. If the facility does get shuttered next spring, some experiments will have to stop before they're even finished. Chris Metcalf is an environmental scientist at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. He and his team of 15 are tracking how lake ecosystems are affected by nanosilver, a substance used as a disinfectant in a growing number of consumer products like laundry detergents. The experimental lakes area is the only place where you can do that kind of work. It's invaluable. It's not only the looming closure of the experimental lakes area that has scientists frustrated. The government has decided to stop funding Canada's northernmost research lab, which has been used to study ozone loss over the Arctic. And last month, the Canadian Parliament passed a law that scaled back environmental assessments and protection of endangered species. All of this is what led to yesterday's protest in Ottawa, where hundreds of scientists gathered. Katie Gibbs, a PhD student and one of the organizers, addressed the crowd. I know that most of you would much rather be in your labs doing what you do best, but we are at a critical point in Canadian history. If we don't stand up for science, nobody will. The Harper government issued a written statement yesterday. It said science and technology remain, quote, a strong priority. For Nova in the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro. The shutdown of research at the Experimental Lakes area comes as Canada's conservative government is making big changes in environmental policy. Peter O'Neill is the Ottawa correspondent for the Vancouver Sun. He's been reporting on these developments. Tell us exactly what's going on there, Peter. We understand that some of the changes are contained in Canada's new budget, a budget that just passed against the objections of a lot of the country's environmental activists. What are they upset about? Well, the budget, Lisa, is one of the most remarkable 
things I've ever seen in my life. It's 425 pages. It's hard to pick up. It changes 70 pieces of legislation. But the one thing that has people's blood boiling are the various changes to, for instance, environmental reviews, the Fisheries Act, species at risk, and it's taking away the authority of a particular uh, agency to rule on major projects like pipelines to the West Coast. Give us one particular example of something that has a certain sector of the population uh, upset. The fisheries is the one I'm most interested in because uh, the conservative government in Canada right now, they're rather angry at President Obama for postponing the Keystone uh, XL pipeline to the Gulf Coast. So anyway, they want to build a pipeline like the Keystone all the way to the West Coast to sell oil sands crude to China. And this pipeline will go over 1,000 waterways, some of them very rich salmon-bearing streams to Kitimat on the West Coast, which is right in the middle of a protected Great Bear rainforest. So they're very concerned that these laws that have been changed will allow the company to build this pipeline over these streams and hurt the fish and the fish habitat because the government has literally taken the term habitat out of the key section. The government says it is streamlining and that the environmental standards themselves will not be compromised. Is this part of a pragmatic economic strategy well, a big part of this is economics. Canada, like the everyone in the world, is in a precarious financial situation. So Harper is trying to expand trade to Asia, which is booming, and they want our natural resources. So they want to build these pipelines, get this oil off to Asia, and they think that that will boost the Canadian economy in time for the 2015 federal election. So there's an economic driver here. A lot of this is coming amid growing friction between the government of Canada and environmentalists there. The government has accused some environmental groups of taking foreign money to, quote, hijack the country's economy. What's it referring to? Well, it's rather bizarre, Lisa. There's a blogger in Vancouver who has written for the newspaper I write for on occasion who has concocted this uh, conspiracy theory that environmental groups are being funded by U.S. trusts as part of a conspiracy to block oil sands exports to Asia to advance the U.S. economy. And the Harper government has really grasped this, as, as have a lot of people in the uh, resource sector. And they've said, aha, this is proof that the environmental groups are against the Canadian interest. Where do Canadians themselves stand? I mean, this is a, a government that has been elected and re-elected by Canadians. Is there any kind of a groundswell one way or another on these issues? I haven't really seen it, Lisa. We see pockets of it, like the protest yesterday here in Ottawa. Canadians uh, are electing the Harper government because it is viewed as the most competent to deal with the economy. But in my province of British Columbia, which is the third biggest province in Canada, the Conservatives have lost about 10 or 15 points in the polls since the election. And that suggests that the Harper government may be paying a price for its actions against environmentalists and, according to the critics, against the environment. All right. Thank you. Peter O'Neill, Ottawa correspondent for the Vancouver Sun. Cheers. 
You can read the Sun series on environmental politics in Canada and check out the Planet Earth site from our partners at NOVA. We've got links at theworld.org. Back to a vast desert in Australia now for our GeoQuiz answer. Today, 25 million acres of this sprawling desert in the Northern Territory was designated a protected area. It's now the largest indigenous conservation zone on the Australian continent. Peter Taylor directs the Australian branch of the Nature Conservancy. We're talking about very flat country with grassy tussocks and very red sand and very, very few rivers. Um, And any rivers that are there, they're dry. They only flow when there's been a lot of rain. So we're talking about the southern Tanami Desert and the Walpuri people that have been the traditional owners of uh, the southern Tanami Desert region for thousands of years. And the answer to the geoquiz is the Tanami Desert. One might be tempted to think that this is not necessarily an important biological area, but it's quite to the contrary, isn't it? Look, in this part of the world, you've got very rare species of rabbit-eared bandicoots, uh, a small kind of you know, metal... Wait, go uh, back. You must. Rabbit-eared bandicoots? <laughs> it's an animal that looks like a rabbit, but it's got a very sharp, pointy nose with very sharp teeth and a long tail that is fluffy, and it's a beautiful grey-pink colour, and it burrows into the sand. And then you've got 70 different types of bird that exists out in this desert and very small types of kangaroo, There's a huge variety of lizards. And one of them has a great name. Well, the one that is very special out there is the Great Desert Skink. Bingo. (laughs) This is a borrowing kind of lizard. The skinks tend to live in the grasses, and there's a special grass out in this country that grows in big clumps, and we call it spinifex. And so they make excellent hidey spots for things like the Great Desert Skink. Well, you've presented um, a really nice image of the place and the life in this desert. Is this conservation agreement seen as a way to sustain the Aboriginals' way of life? Yes, look, the really significant story here is that Aboriginal people in Australia have a very intimate relationship with their country They see very much their responsibility for kind of looking after and helping to maintain habitats uh, in these kinds of environments. So the Walpuri people, the traditional Aboriginal owners of this part of the world, today they, after a lot of planning work, have declared their entire area an Indigenous protected area. So what we have here is a framework for the Walpuri people in the Tanami Desert to be able to look after their country, to actually attract, support Western science, if you like, combining with Aboriginal knowledge to ensure that they've got the best skills and capacity to look after country. And I think the other really important thing is that this provides an economic base for them because this new declaration attracts resourcing from the Australian government, which will go towards employment of rangers. And one more thing, uh, Peter, is this the kind of place that uh, one would want to travel as a tourist? We were talking around campfires last night out in the desert about people coming to visit and for the Walpuri people to show visitors around. And I think they're fiercely proud of the work that they are doing and their attachment to country. You know, the desert isn't for everyone, but there's certainly the lure of the desert for a lot of Australians. Last night after we 
had this absolutely fantastic celebration around yeah, campfires, particularly with the Aboriginal women that were singing their traditional songs and laughing and, and being very happy. I lay there in my swag out in amongst the spinifex, looking at the Milky Way and just dozing off to sleep with this glorious singing in the background. And I thought, this is a really very special place. Peter Taylor with the Nature Conservancy in Australia. Parks Australia has officially declared about 25 million acres of land in the Tanami Desert, the nation's largest indigenous protected area. Tanami Desert being the answer to our geo-quiz. Thanks, Peter. Okay, thank you very much, Lisa. Fragile X, heavy metal, and one brave Brit coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI. Today's story, reported in conjunction with NOVA, was made possible by the Candida Fund. The World is supported in part by WGBH, producer of Market Warriors, from the people that brought you Antiques Roadshow. Four pickers scour flea markets nationwide, hoping to out-profit their competitors at auction. Don't miss the series premiere of Market Warriors, Monday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins. This is The World, and we'd like you to meet Tom Spicer. I'm a bit lost. I'm a bit lost. Now might be hard for us to understand what Tom's saying, but his brother and sister understand him just fine. Tom is a 40-year-old man with a form of autism called Fragile X Syndrome. He's also a man obsessed with the heavy metal band Metallica and a huge fan of its drummer, Lars Ulrich. What Tom was saying just there was that he wants to meet Lars. Tom's siblings set out to make that dream come true, and they made a documentary about it. It's called Mission to Lars, and it premieres tomorrow in the United States. Tom lives in England, where he usually works in a special needs facility, stuffing newspapers into animal bedding. His sister Kate is a journalist. His brother Will is a filmmaker. The three of them flew from England to Los Angeles to catch Metallica on tour and maybe, just maybe, meet the drummer. Kate and Will say the journey also helped them to know their brother better. You know, he's a special guy. He's, he's capable of being really magical at times. But, uh, you know, it, it hasn't been easy, it's fair to say. While we grew up knowing that Tom was learning disabled, we didn't really know very much about Fragile X syndrome. In fact, he wasn't even diagnosed with Fragile X until he was 15. And a lot of making this film was about us going on a journey of discovery about Fragile X as well as about our brother. And, and so how does it show itself in Tom? Tom can't read, he can't write, his speech is very poor. He has extremely high anxiety levels, so he he can't cope with immensely loud, unexpected sounds. So the fact that our brother had asked us 10,000 times that he wanted to meet Lars Ulrich of Metallica, <laughs> his favourite heavy metal band, we were like... Oh, What's going on here? He wants to go to a Metallica gig. He wants to meet Lars Ulrich. And yet it's going to cause him absolute sort of, you know, mental torture. And let's hear from a little bit of the film right now. You had arrived in America heading to the first of three Metallica concerts. And here you are talking to Tom in a a kind of state of frustration because of his resistance to going forward with this trip. You've said to me and Will for the last 10 years more want to meet Lars, want to meet Lars, want to meet Lars. And we've brought you to America to meet him. And you don't want to. No. Somebody like that. Oh, I mean, I just find that clip so 
moving. It's the way he says, sorry about that, Kate. He knows how hard Will and I have worked to try and realise this dream of want to meet Lars, want to meet Lars. And he just can't do it because of his syndrome, because of his fears. But at this point, Will and I don't really know enough about Tom's disability to make it doable for him. It's kind of sensory overload for anybody. Yeah, we were all very raw and tired and the filmmaking process never stops. As a result, my brother wasn't wasn't really getting any brotherly support, as it were. My mum sent us a, an email while we were away, which was torture. She just said, just remember, Tom thought he was going on holiday. And then the next thing you know, you know, Will's having to stick a camera in his face and Tom's face takes on his sort of really pinched suffering and... And I'm just constantly sort of cajoling and pushing and learning disabled people struggle to be heard. They struggle for the people who can enable them to hear what it is they want. And actually, the irony of it is, if you go back right to the start of the journey, Tom had always said to us, earplugs, 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 because he knew if we could get earplugs in his ears, it wouldn't be such a challenge for him. But it took us ages to find that out. You put headphones on him and made him part of the of the audio gathering process. So he had headphones yeah. and he had a microphone, and he seemed to take to it like like any uh, audio technician would. But those headphones not only occlude the sound that is so difficult for him to hear with his hypersensitivity, it it pulls him into the crew. He's not just the subject, you know. He's not the different one, and I, and I don't think Tom is unaware that he's different to his other brothers and sisters. Um, That's a huge you know. point, and it gets to the point that your mother made when she said, remember, he thinks he's on a holiday, on, on oh, vacation. Yeah. You, I mean, you guys are very sensitive to what your brother feels, and I'm sure you're sensitive to you know, the idea that some people may be patronizing to him or even that making a film about his journey may be taken the wrong way, that he is mm. kind of being... being uh, Exploited? You've heard that, huh? <laughs> Yeah, yeah I guess you've heard. I think there was a point when even we thought, oh, no, what are we doing? We're feeding our kind of media appetite with our brother's story. And actually, we ended up being, you know, three three siblings making a film about our experience, about <laughs> our pers- personal and emotional journey. I, I, I defy anyone to tell me we exploited Tom once they've seen the film. You're saying that Tom was, was the third partner? Yeah, oh, it's his film. If I ring him now, his first question is, how my film? So it, it is Tom's film, and he is, he is incredible in it. You know, he, he, has, he is very natural in front of the camera. Will, take us to the second of the three Metallica concerts. This is one in Sacramento. OK, so here we were at the second concert, having failed to get into the first one, um, and we, we just got him to the edge of the concert. And crucially, we'd learned that Tom needed to feel a part of the production team, so we'd given him some sound recording equipment, some headphones, which also helped him with the hearing issues or the, the loudness. And, uh, yeah, that was amazing, that moment where he he sort of twigged that there was, you know, there was this exciting thing happening inside, and he he recorded it. And, yeah, his excitement was palpable. What's in there? <laughs> Whose voice? <laughs> James Hetfield's voice. Yeah. James Hetfield's voice. Is in there? Is yeah. in there? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Respect, Tom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me five. Hey, I'm trying to get you to do that for the last week. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That clip is is incredible because just the headphones 
I've, I've occluded the horrible noise for him. He's got the sound recording device, so he's got James Hetfield um, singing on there, and he comes out and he is just alive. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's probably one of the happiest moments in the film, actually. You know, he, his world has changed. Kate's now gone and set up Mencat missions to try and recreate that experience for other people in Tom's position because it is clearly... Therapeutic. Therapeutic and well worth doing and life-changing. It has changed Because I think it's too easy to sort of mollycoddle people and allow political correctness and for all the right reasons to say, look, you can't do these sort of things with people. But actually it's wrong to assume that they can't do them. You know, one of the reasons we made this film is people are uncomfortable and fearful around learning disability because they simply don't encounter it in their day-to-day lives. And we're, like I say, you know, we're on a mission to get, to get our brother out there. He's just, he's a dude. Kate and Will uh, Spicer, thank you very much and our best to Tom. Oh, thanks for having us on. Thank you very much. The documentary Mission to Lars premieres in Boston tomorrow in a benefit at the New England Aquarium. You can see a trailer for the film and learn more about Fragile X Syndrome at theworld.org. With Metallica emanating from the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. Where do I take this pain of mine? I run, but it stays right by my side. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Carnegie Corporation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Annenberg Foundation, and the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector. Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.